Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Bookwaves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. This interview with legendary novelist Don DeLillo was conducted on April 2nd, 2003 in San Francisco. My guest is Don DeLillo, whose latest novel is Cosmopolis. Earlier novels include White Noise, Ratner's Star, Underworld, several other books. Don DeLillo, as I'm reading these books, I'm noticing various themes. The theme that seems central is the role the individual plays in mass society and the way society seems to be going through periods of entropy. Am I on the right track here? And it's also the role that society plays in the individual's life and and the individual's consciousness. I don't know about entropy. I do think that life becomes more complicated almost by the minute. And I think part of the reason, perhaps, is our increasing dependence on technology. I don't think we, we necessarily understand this, and I'm not sure we're aware of it because it's so deeply ingrained in our lives by this time. Technology seems to me to have a force that insists on on being realized, on being applied, and very often we become dependent on on such forces in our lives without truly realizing it. It becomes another level of existence. Do we need everything that's developed and perfected technologically. As it turns out, I think we do. Once one of these devices enters our lives, we do become dependent on it and we do need it. We need it because we have it more than because it's necessary. When the character of Eric Packer travels around through his limousine, it's almost as if the rest of the world disappears. The character in Cosmopolis, there is nothing else. It all becomes a game. Human beings stop existing. This is part of his particular response to the world around him. That is, he has very little response to the world around him. I think he's an extremely interesting man, a a multi-billionaire asset manager and currency trader who reads serious poetry, who collects serious art, who owns a decommissioned nuclear bomber, but who is perfectly happy spending most of this particular day in his white stretch limousine mainly because it is equipped with so many devices, amenities, and luxuries that he doesn't miss the world around him and uh, doesn't necessarily see the people around him. This is, this is one of the aspects of his life, in fact. While he's on his tour, several things happen to him and outside the limousine, almost um, a grab bag of events from a presidential motorcade to a riot to assassination attempts. And that's all impinging on it when he steps out. That world inside the limo is self-contained, though. That's why I was thinking he's so alienated from the world. And I wonder how that relates to some of the characters in your other books, particularly in, in White Noise, where the family kind of is overwhelmed 
by the toxic cloud. There seems to be a theme running through my books, which I, I didn't become aware of for quite a long time. It's a theme of men in small rooms. And it didn't occur to me while I was working on Cosmopolis that Eric Packer fits into this uh, format in a way. He is, he is a man in a large automobile, which isn't all that different. However, he is noticeably different from most of my characters. He, he is willfully alienated from the world. In fact, I don't even think I'd use the word alienated. He is just so clinically self-involved that um, the rest of the world is virtually invisible to him, particularly the people in it. But he is technologically independent of the world around him because his limo is equipped with, uh, with so many um, devices, particularly the computer screens and the TV monitors that help him figure out what's going on around him in two dimensions. In this day, which is an example of the kind of acceleration of time I think we began to experience in the last decade. And I think it was, it was an experience based largely on the interesting confluence of technology and money. It seems to me that for a while, we were all living in the future, the future of vast investment potential, of unrestricted um, markets. It was a time in which ordinary people sat looking at their computer screens, watching their money develop bone and muscle. It was a time in which chief executive officers became global celebrities, a time in which the Dow kept climbing, capital markets kept surging, and in my view, in which time seemed to move faster. You set the book on a day in April 2000, in that month when things began sliding. So obviously, there's the intimations of the mortality of that whole way of life when you set your book. I think this is what happened. You see, between the end of the Cold War and the beginning of what we now call the Age of Terror, there was an entire decade, essentially the 1990s, in which money became the theme. And it began to falter. That is, the markets began to falter precisely at the time you mentioned, in the spring of the year 2000. In the novel, it happens faster because everything happens faster. It doesn't happen over weeks and months. It happens uh, all in a single day, catastrophically. And it's, in fact, caused by the main character, Eric, which is not such an exaggeration because there was a firm called Long-Term Capital Management located in Greenwich, Connecticut, which through its own miscalculations nearly brought about the um, global collapse of the financial system, something I did not know while I was working on the novel. It may have been happening then, but I didn't know about it until quite a bit later. When did you write the book? I started it, coincidentally, in April of 2000, although I didn't know at the time that I would be referring to this period. Uh, I was just writing about a man traveling cross town in Manhattan, trying to get from the east side to the west side through heavy traffic. It began to develop that this individual did have a, a strong interest in financial institutions. I began also to understand that he was, despite his youth, he's 28, he was feeling a distinct sense of mortality as this day began. And he is moving, despite the acceleration of time, he is moving backward in time. 
back toward memories of his father who died a premature death. This is a, a, a kind of counterforce in the book, this passage into time, into mortality, and into violence. As the book goes on, I became less and less sympathetic to Eric. He does a lot of things which become less and less appealing until at the end, I'm almost reminded of Horace McCoy's They Shoot Horses, Don't They? The man definitely has an urge toward self-destruction. I don't think he knows this until the book is about halfway over. But as he moves into the past and as he moves across town in Manhattan, I do think that he becomes, I don't like the word, more sympathetic um, as the novel progresses. He does begin to see that there are other people around him. He begins to understand the deep sadness of his own life. He begins to understand that other people exist. For months, he never even looked at the man who drives his car, his chauffeur. Suddenly, he begins to see him. He has a what I hope is a moving conversation with an old friend of his father's in the barbershop across town. Eventually, I think he submits to what we might call his fate. The journey of the limousine also goes from high-rises, it, it appears to go from high-rises to slums as well. This, in fact, is the geography of that part of Manhattan, 47th Street from the East River to the Hudson River. I did not have to invent this. We start in the international district around the United Nations, move toward investment houses and banks around Park Avenue, through the Diamond District, into Times Square, and the theater district, through some residential areas, and then into a more dismal part of what is still called Hell's Kitchen on the far west side of broken down tenements, in effect, a street that's used as an auto junkyard, and then the river. Don DeLillo, what prompted this particular book coming on the heels of The Body Artist, or before that, Underworld? It's a mystery, and it began, as I said a little earlier, simply with an idea of a man crossing town. There's, there's no explanation for this any more than there is, uh, I, I think, for most ideas that novelists feel they receive from some unexpected place. Well, then let's, let's talk about your work in a more broader sense. Uh, I have a quote here from 1988 that I'd like you to comment on. The writer is the person who stands outside society, independent of affiliation and independent of influence. The writer is the man or woman who automatically takes a stand against his or her government. American writers ought to stand and live in the margins and be more dangerous. Do you still believe that? I believe it, I, but I think it becomes harder and harder to do. And it's not something I do consciously while I'm working. I write what I'm impelled to write. I don't write according to a plan or to a manifesto, certainly. But I think in, in some books more than others, this is what in fact has happened. I think it's nice to believe that today still a writer can work against the state, the corporation, the entire process of assimilation and waste that characterizes uh, this culture. What is a writer's duty toward dealing with, say, a war in Iraq or other issues such as, say, an election campaign that <laughs> was illegitimate, is it the writer's duty to comment on it or to just let whatever comes out come out? How do you see that? I don't think a novelist has, has a particular duty. Uh, a journalist may have a duty. 
a novelist does what he's impelled to do, and it, he may not feel first that it's a good idea for him to speak out on an issue publicly. Second, he may not feel that he has to write in response to a particular event. In fact, I tend to distrust fiction that's written in direct response, direct immediate response to an event. I would rather trust my middle-of-the-night thoughts than the newspaper. And in fact, it took me more than 20 years to understand that I could possibly write a novel about the assassination of President Kennedy. Which is Libra. Libra was written roughly between 1984 and 1987, and it didn't occur to me in, in all the preceding years that I could even approach such a subject, that I could write anything about a historical figure, much less a novel about such a momentous event. One of the things that happened is that I, I realized, I learned for the first time in the early 1980s that Lee Harvey Oswald had lived in the Bronx only three or four blocks from me when he was 13 years old and I was 16. I'd known that he'd spent some time in the Bronx as a kid, but had no idea where exactly. And when I discovered this, it suddenly made me understand that I had a route into his, into his mind, at least for that period of his life. That is, I knew what he was seeing and hearing because I had seen it and heard it. And this was the first inkling I had that uh, I might be able to attempt such a novel. When you're looking at your work as a whole, can you ever say, I feel I was more successful, point to a particular book and say, this book worked better than others? Or do you just kind of put them, put them in the back of your mind, start on your next project? The ideal situation is to, is to put work into the back of your mind. But there is something that tells you about certain books you've done in the past. <clears throat> and my own general feeling is that my work in the, the second half of my life as a writer is more important than the work I did earlier. And I think it took me all that time to develop a level of concentration and a sense of the seriousness of the work uh, that I hadn't quite achieved before. What do you think the turning point was? The turning point was the names, a book I wrote when I was living in Greece. And it became the turning point because it introduced me to a new world, in fact, to an ancient world, to new languages, new sites, new experiences, to a part of the world that was in turmoil at the time with the Iranian revolution, with terrorism becoming rampant in many mid-eastern mid, uh, countries and in Greece itself, and with the war in Beirut. And so I became much more conscious of immediate history than I'd been before, and much more conscientious about composing sentences and paragraphs and thinking more deeply into characters than I'd done before. You're listening to an interview with Don DeLillo, whose latest book is Cosmopolis. Don DeLillo, uh, you mentioned before, you grew up in the Bronx, and the Bronx, people who grow up in the Bronx and Queens, I grew up in Queens, we have a certain affinity for baseball, and I notice baseball runs throughout your, all your books. Were you a baseball fan growing up? 
Oh, yeah, I was a serious fan. I lived not too far from Yankee Stadium and spent uh, many afternoons at the stadium watching the Yankees and have a much clearer recollection of the 1950 Yankees than I do of the 1990 Yankees, in fact, although I still watch, I, I'm still interested. It's just a function of memory, of course, as, as one gets older. And it's it's still very vivid to me, watching Mantle stride across toward left center field to make a catch and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, it, if you grow up with baseball, it's 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 part of your bloodstream. But not only that, it's a language in itself and a language which is very difficult to teach others. I, they have to experience something similar before you can discuss the deeper matters of the sport. And when I was writing Underworld, the prologue concerns a, a baseball game actually played in 1951 in New York. And somewhere in the back of my mind, I understood that this would make the novel untranslatable. This was okay. It's such an American novel. It's steeped in American customs and American language that it was perfectly understandable that, that no one would be able to translate this into any other language. As it turned out, about 17 foreign publishers did find a way to translate it. I'm not sure how successfully, but they seem to be drawn towards the baseball theme in particular, a curious thing, um, which I, I, I'm not sure I understand. There's something very strange, um, very American, very open and democratic about the game of baseball, I think. And um, it seems to have an appeal to others, even even if it's only a distant one. That is, others who who, who don't play the game. Of course, in, in Japan, it's um, possibly even more popular than it is here. How did you feel when all the battles began over Barry Bonds' home run ball after what what you did with the ball in the beginning of Underworld? You mean the legal oh, yeah. the legal suits? <laughs> well, the the ball in in Underworld, in actual fact, disappeared. We don't know what happened to it. Bobby Thompson, who hit the home run, said that when he arrived in the Giants' clubhouse for the beginning of the World Series, which was the very next day, if I, I remember correctly, the clubhouse attendant said a dozen people showed up yesterday with baseballs claiming this is the one you hit. And since there was no way to verify any of these claims, the whole issue was dropped. And to my knowledge, no one after that ever came forward and claimed that he had the ball. So um, I and I gave the ball a, a history of its own. Was that? Uh, did you discover that fact early on, and then have it in the back of your mind, or was it something that you stumbled across around the time you were beginning to write the book? I knew that that no one had claimed um, ownership in a convincing way, and it would be interesting to learn that whoever did end up with the baseball was one of these twelve people and just didn't know how to authenticate. Um, his possession. Don DeLillo, you say that for you, the idea is a mystery, how you begin to write. Is there any particular process you go through in the writing? Uh, was Underworld written in the same process, say, as Cosmopolis, or because the second is much shorter, is that a different way of writing? How do you do that? In a technical sense, Underworld was different because I intentionally tried to open up the sentence. It seemed to me that the book would would have enormous scope. I, I sensed this in 
in the early stages even. And I decided that the sentence itself ought to grow in, in magnitude and allow me to do more things within it. And I think even the fact that I was writing about baseball at the, at the beginning of the book uh, helped me come to this realization. Something in the game made me feel that an expansiveness was called for here. And I, I think I followed this more or less faithfully throughout the novel. When it came to Cosmopolis, I had, I had a completely different feeling at the outset. And I was determined to write in shorter sentences, perhaps clearer sentences, without dashes that, that might elongate a sentence, and um, without so much imagery, particularly without analogies, comparisons, similes. The idea was to seek a, a deeper level of, of concentration and discipline, even if only for its own sake. Does the writing, the style of a book then, uh, or a number of your books, or just here, does the style reflect, in that sense, the content almost as a metaphor? I would like that to happen, book to book. I'm not sure it, it always does, and in, in some cases, the book doesn't seem to call for it. When I was working on Libra, because the Kennedy assassination was so endlessly documented in the Warren report, it occurred to me to write a novel that, to some degree, had a documentary character. I, th I think the sentences are generally shorter and, and more plain in tone than I usually try to achieve. And this is, this is the reason, because the, the crime itself has such an enormous documentary background that I decided this element ought to somehow inform the novel itself. In a book like uh, White Noise, then, are you doing similar things or Mao too? White Noise was, was a curious experience. I, um, I started writing more or less out of desperation. A, a great deal of time had passed since I'd finished my previous novel, and I just started writing. I, I felt it was time to get back to work. I had no strong idea, and so I just did what Hemingway advised many decades earlier, which is get black on white. I just sat down at the typewriter and started describing a few things, a street here, a house there, and for whatever reason, mysteriously, I began to see characters and, and situations and rooms and streets and hear dialogue in my head. When that happened, did you then sit down, outline what you were going to do, or just keep going with it? I just kept going in that book more than others. I let the book speak for itself and determine its own course. And I'd finish a chapter, start a new one that had absolutely nothing to do with the previous chapter. And it felt good. It felt right. And at some point, as I reached the middle of the novel, a sense of definition began to um, assert itself, a sense of structure. And, and the book, as it turns out, does have a structure. It has, it has a centerpiece, which is the airborne toxic event. Structure is, is very important to me, uh, whether, whether it turns out to be symmetrical or otherwise. I want to know it's there. It feels like something that's um, crucial to, to the architecture of a novel. And it tends usually to build itself. I never do outlines. I never draw diagrams, and I never determine in advance what the structure of a book will be. It simply begins to uh, speak to me.
So it, it kind of emerges as you're as you're working on it. It emerges out of some corner of consciousness in ways that uh, I don't think anyone could uh, explain. And Mao too, it almost seems a, a a little different from your other work. How did that emerge? Mao too emerged more definitively than than other novels from two photographs I saw. One photograph was of a wedding ceremony of the Unification Church. There they were in, a, in quite a small photograph, thousands of people, brides and grooms, being married simultaneously by Reverend Moon. The other photograph was a shocking picture of a novelist in seclusion being discovered by two news photographers who took his picture unexpectedly in his hometown in Vermont or New Hampshire. And this was J.D. Salinger, who, of course, had avoided being interviewed or photographed for many decades. And there he was on the front page of the New York Post, looking very much like a man who'd just been shot. The power of this picture had an effect on me. And it turned out that I, that I would soon be launched on a novel about the regimented crowd represented by the Unification Church wedding and the novelist who is a kind, at least in theory, a kind of champion of the self, the, the arch-individualist. This is the course the novel eventually began to take. But it seems that that, that, that juxtaposition you're talking about, in this case, uh, maybe almost autobiographical, seems to run through a lot of your works, the individual against that mass of humanity or history or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, it is. It, it's part of my work. Uh, I, I guess in Mao too, it's it's more prominent because the individual happens to be a writer. But I don't feel a particular kinship to Bill Gray, who is the novelist in the novel. In fact, he was he he gave me more trouble than any of the other characters. It, it took me a long while to begin to understand who he was and how his mind worked. I uh, the fact that we're both novelists didn't really matter uh, all that much. I wasn't, I wasn't so interested in how he created a sentence or a paragraph, but in the man himself. And I'm not a recluse myself, as Bill Gray is. Whatever kinship I felt with him was hard-earned and, and took, me, uh, took me a long time to develop. There's a quote from him, which is actually on the jacket of Mao Tzu, which says, I used to think it was possible for a novelist to alter the inner life of a culture. Now, bomb makers and gunmen have taken that. And the question is, do you believe that? Do you agree with him? It's hard to argue at this point that novelists can alter consciousness around them in, in, in a large-scale way. But there was a time, if, if you think of Kafka and the fact that we had to invent an adjective in order to describe a world which seemed to emerge from a Kafka story or novel. Kafkaesque has, still has a meaning in the world. The direct result of, of, of a writer's work, I'm not sure it's possible today for this to happen. I think things that serious novelists write become absorbed so readily into the consciousness, if they emerge at all, that they disappear. They tend to disappear and they tend not to have the powerful effect that fiction used to have decades ago, at least occasionally. Further, that if there's such a thing as a world narrative, 
it's being written now by terrorists, by dictators, by tyrants of various kinds. As I, I began to understand while I was working on Mao Tzu in, in the late 1980s and early 1990s, it was a time, after all, when the fatwa was issued, the death verdict, the death edict issued against Salman Rushdie for something he wrote in a novel. When I spoke with Rushdie, that was the part that astonished him, that this obscure novel by an obscure, relatively obscure novelist could take on this universal meaning to such a degree. What an amazing event that literature could still have that potency, and I think that still stuns Salman Rushdie today. Of course, it was a special situation. It, it, it had potency in reference to people who are not necessarily consumers of serious fiction, but who, of course, much more importantly, were offended on, on, a, on a religious level. It's a, an extraordinary situation. The only kind of situation I might imagine in, in which a novel could have such an impact. Don DeLillo, a lot of people use the word postmodern to describe your work, and it doesn't seem to ring a bell for me. It doesn't seem postmodern. It doesn't seem that reflexive. I don't accept the term. I, I'm not sure I'm able to reject it because the word postmodern has been used in so many ways and in so many different disciplines. I don't think I'd be able to define it myself. I, I guess I understand why white noise might be called postmodern, although I'm not sure I could explain why. It's just something um, intrinsic in, in the book. But I don't know about my other work. It doesn't seem to, to have that reflexive quality, that self-referring quality you're, you're, you've mentioned. Where do you think literature is going today? Do you read much of modern literature? To some degree, my writing has destroyed my reading. I'm not the avid reader of fiction that I used to be. But, of course, I, I, I do read seriously from, that, from time to time, both fiction and nonfiction. I also look at movies seriously, as I've done for decades. In important ways, perhaps, that has helped define my sensibility, although I don't think it affects the work I do or the, or the sentences I write. You stated in the past that one of your great influences was Jean-Luc Godard. I wouldn't call him an influence on my work. I'd, I'd say that, that he was an influence on the way I began to see the world, the way I began to think back in the late 1950s and early 60s when European and Japanese movies were, were suddenly emerging into uh, American culture so importantly and uh, so interestingly. They did have an effect. But I wouldn't say that they directly helped determine the way I wrote fiction, no. I just began to understand the significance of movies in our, in our society, in our lives. I don't think of the novel and the film as conflicting elements. I think of them as part of the same narrative need that people have. As long as people maintain a need for narrative, and we all do to some degree in our lives. As long as that happens, there will always be novels. There will be novels as long as there are movies because these two media, these two forms of, of human expression are, are deeply entwined, I believe. Don DeLillo, how do you feel when you read an article and it says so-and-so is the next Don DeLillo. I mean, what, what kind of feeling comes up for you when, you when you see something like that? I guess it's rewarding in a way. I, after all, I, I started 
very much doubting that I'd ever be able to produce publishable fiction, or at least uh, at, at novel length. And um, and so uh, it, it's nice to know that uh, I've had some influence on younger writers, and it's important for me to know that I have some younger readers. That's um, uh, central to, to the satisfaction I take in uh, the work I do. Don DeLillo, now Cosmopolis has come out. Are you planning to work on another short novel, or, or are you planning to... Uh tried the longer form again. I'm tempted to say uh, I know exactly what's coming next, but in fact, it's still something uh, of a mystery to me and, um, and not one I could discuss uh, intelligibly for, for more than four seconds. So I'd better stop right now. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. <laughs>